Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 18th, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Denver Post editor Greg Moore resigning on Tuesday after 14 years with the paper. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, your uh, good friend of Greg's, is, was this just the right time for him to move on? Well, I don't have any inside scoop on this, but I'll say <laughs> it is a bad time for anyone in the newspaper industry. It is. You, he said it the best when he was telling his staff and he was talking about looking at a photograph of one of the Pulitzers, the Post won under his uh, tenure there, and it, the Post won more than one. And he said, you look at that photo and 50 of the people in that photo are gone. And that's because of how newspapers are downsizing across the country. It is just a very tough time to be in newspapers. And we should celebrate the newspapers that exist because it would be a sadder world without them. I completely agree. Todd Shepard from Complete Colorado. Uh, Greg Moore saw the post through some very tumultuous times. That's had some crazy times in over 100 years, but the last 14 have been uh, legendary. He has some pretty big shoes to fill. Uh, he does. Well, he's leaving big shoes. Big shoes yeah. Um, you know, certainly I think when you're a, a college freshman and you're, you, you're leaving and you say, hey, I'm going to go be a journalism major, nobody ever asks you the question, do you think there will be a major disruption to the business model that will completely upend your industry by the time your career is over? Uh, I probably agree with Patty that there's no scandal here, um, you know, or there's no backdoor politics or anything like that. It was the right time to go because the morale is low and certainly 14 years at a paper that size. Um, not that that's an extraordinarily long tenure. That's a that's a really firm tenure, and and he can certainly walk away with his held held head held high about some great things like the Pulitzer that the Post has done in that interim. Eric Sommer, political analyst, what strikes you as uh, one of the legacies that Greg Moore leaves behind from his time at the Post? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is when he took this job 14 years ago. We had an intense newspaper war that characterized Denver for most of its history, and. You know, uh, as he leaves the job, the Post is the only daily newspaper uh, in town. Uh, 14 years, as uh, Todd and Patty have pointed out, is a good run, a long run. Uh, he's a good man. I'm going to be curious what comes next for him. I'm going to be equally curious what comes next for the Post. Uh, that probably has a bigger civic impact here through in Denver and and, and throughout the state. Uh, he. He led during a very tough era. One paper didn't make it. Uh, the Post is hanging on, but some would say it's only hanging on. And it will be interesting to see what the Denver Post looks like 14 years from now, much less 14 months. And Kristen Wyatt joins us. Thank you so much. First time on the program, a reporter with the AP. Your content is carried uh, not only in the Post, but throughout uh, the region. What do you make of a major move like this? It's hard to say. Um, like they've, everybody's mentioned, it's been such a tumultuous time. I don't think it has to do necessarily with personalities that are running the newsroom, as it does outside forces. Who, who is going to advertise? What, what is the point of a daily newspaper? Is it to carry mattress ads and car dealership ads? Or does it, you know, inform policymakers and people pay for that content? So I think there's a lot of newspapers exploring uh, different content sharing, different ways of doing business that affects everybody. So that's I'd be thinking, be curious to see where it goes. Uh, everybody's curious to see: uh, Are they going to beef up in reporting? Are they going to change reporting? Would they have a new owner maybe sweep mm -hmm. in and change the whole caboodle? Um, and what ways will a newspaper find to be viable? Like you said, 14 years from now, I don't know. 
Yeah, definitely uh, something fun for the next bleeder to uh, take, uh, take on. Ides of March Tuesday this week saw John Kasich win Ohio and Donald Trump handily win Florida, causing the exit of Marco Rubio from the presidential race. With a contested convention and or a Trump nomination more and more likely, Colorado's uncommitted delegates and federal officials facing re-election now become a much bigger story. Patty, Mike Hoffman came out a couple weeks ago and already said that he was uh, not a Trump guy, not a supporter of Donald Trump, uh, was a supporter of Marco Rubio. Where does somebody like him go now who's facing a pretty uh, stiff challenge for his race in CD6? Well, I'm sure he's hoping he's not going into retirement, which <laughs> is what some people in the Republican Party are probably worried they're facing, given the fact that Trump might lead this ticket. You know, last week we talked here about Colorado legislators maybe imposing a civics test on graduating high school seniors. We are getting a civics test every time we turn on the news. You know, there is nothing on cable news other than the fact that Donald Trump may be the Republican candidate for uh, the presidency. You hear them talking about how can they possibly get around, you know, at a contested convention, will who can get around the Trump rules? If he gets all the numbers, will he get it? If he doesn't get the numbers, can they bring in a fourth candidate, which the agreement seems to be they really can't? Although the Republican Party and the rules makers at the convention seem to have carte blanche on whatever rules they want to make. So every day you cannot believe what the machinations that are going on behind the scenes. Meanwhile, of course, we have the superdelegate system in the Democratic Party here in Colorado. So all of a sudden, you know, Hillary's just rolling along. It doesn't matter what Bernie Sanders says. I'm guessing right now a lot of Republicans think it would be great to have the superdelegate system, which mm -hmm. they don't have. Right. I, I believe the same thing. It's like, the, that's a great idea. We should have that. Uh, Todd, I've heard uh, a lot of, I mean, let's say a lot. Let me, let me uh, qualify that. I have heard more and more Republicans come out, uh, even in Colorado, saying, uh, I'll uh, support the nominee, whoever he is, even if it's Trump. And I'm just wondering, in a purple state like Colorado, is that wise or foolish? Uh, gosh, I guess it depends on who that elected official is and what the makeup of their constituency looks like exactly. But I think there's a flip side to your question. And uh, I'll t a tip of the hat to my friend Craig Silverman, an alumni of this table. He's really the only one I've heard so far saying, when are one of these Republican Senate candidates going to come out and openly declare they are on the Trump ticket and try to get Trump coattails? It hasn't happened yet that I I'm aware of. And quite frankly, that's going to add to this notion that the GOP is splintering. Um, but again, as we talk about the national convention that's coming up for the Republicans and how, you know, there's some trouble there, what I think is really interesting is how much does that trickle down to the state convention? Remember, the delegates from Colorado haven't been chosen. And normally it's much of a homecoming king and queen process, right? Mm -hmm. People who have been here forever, you nominate them to the national convention and they go, and it's sort of a reward for 20 years of service. Not this year. It's going to be a fight for some of these uh, delegates uh, to, to win a delegate ticket to the National Convention. If I'm the New York Times or the L.A. Times, I absolutely have a crew of at least one, maybe two people to, color, to cover the Colorado Convention because it could augur what's coming up at the national level. Eric, let's follow up with that. I mean, on Super Tuesday, it seemed like being a Republican delegate from Colorado was just boring. You didn't get to do anything at, the, at your own meetings, things like that. Now, the focal point of the convention may be upon some of these people. What do you think? I equated uh, the, the Colorado policy in terms of not holding a preference poll to a stuck clock. Even a stuck clock, you know, is right twice a day. <laughs> I, I, uh, 
the powers that be in the Colorado GOP may have lucked into this because I don't think they were terribly prescient. I think they were just trying to limit participation, limit brain damage, and be a non-factor. Uh, but in the process of that and in the way the whole national process has played out, a lot of these delegates, as Todd has pointed out, may be a key factor. Um, there are not any other state delegations at this point, say for that powerhouse group from the United States Virgin Islands, who at this point are uncommitted en masse. Now, as Todd points out, they may not all be uncommitted. We'll see what happens at the state convention and who is selected to go and whether they are selected based on some kind of publicly stated um, loyalty to one candidate or another. The math is interesting here. Everyone thinks Trump is on a glide path to get those 1,237 delegates, the magic number. First of all, Trump refers to it as some kind of arbitrary magic number. It's not an arbitrary number. It's a majority. It's 50% plus one. It's not some number that, that, that somebody plucked out of nowhere. Currently, about 60% of those delegates to Cleveland have been selected around the country. And Trump has won about 47% of those delegates already selected. So out of the 40% that has still have to be selected, Trump needs to win about 55% of those remaining delegates that are still out there to be awarded, which is a higher batting average than what he's batted so far. Now, there are some more winner state take all states in play. The whole thing could come down to California. California is often a non-factor because it's last in the process. It votes on June 7th. California is winner take all by congressional district. So you are probably looking, I believe there are 53 congressional districts out there, 53 separate winner-take-all campaigns on June 7th that could decide the whole thing. Lastly, I'm just intrigued with the notion by which to all of these Republicans, mainstream Republicans who always thought Ted Cruz was the kiss of death, crazy, whatever you want to say. All of a sudden, he's starting to look really good these days, which shows you how far this whole thing has drifted. You talked uh, before we rolled tape about uh, Lindsey Graham saying, you know, one, you know, one's uh, what was uh, well, one's uh, death by poison, one's death by gunshot, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he said, ah, poison's not bad. I'm going with the, with Ted Cruz. Kristen, <laughs> uh, we talked about uh, you know. Uh, 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 politicians running for uh, office again. There's a whole big batch at the state capitol, and you cover all the different issues up there. Is there any sense of what's going on nationally among the politicians, the Colorado leaders at, the Capitol, at Capitol Hill? Absolutely. In fact, when you wonder why Republicans seem so panicked nationwide about a Trump candidacy, it may be because they're afraid of losing the White House, but it's going to filter down to small potato races up and down the ticket. Um, Democrats here have, are one seat away from taking a majority of the Senate again. If that happens, they've got the governor's office, they've got the House. It is no holds barred. Um, so it, it's going to make very big difference in little things like that. And in Colorado, it's a particular state with a nut that's been tough for Democrats to crack, and that is Latino turnout. The numbers on paper look good for them. For example, in the 6th Congressional District in Aurora, the numbers look like they should be able to pick off Mike Hoffman. They haven't been able to because they haven't gotten the kind of Latino turnout they might need, they think they need, um, to, to win that seat. So it's the smaller races and, mm -hmm. and state houses all around the country, and Colorado is ground zero for why that's such a concern. The handling of parolees with violent histories by the Colorado Department of Corrections is being called into question this week in a complete Colorado report. In an email sent to Governor Hickenlooper's office, DOC Executive Director Rick Ramish referred to parolee Calvin Johnson, who is now being charged with first-degree murder, as having a record in conduct not indicative of committing homicide. 
Todd, uh, you broke the story. It's been huge. You've done a great job with it. I'm just going to hand it off to you. What do folks need to know at this point? Well, for the background, Calvin Johnson was paroled September 1st last year, um, and he had numerous problems while he was on parole. In fact, several times before he actually went out, he said, can I self-revoke? Then once he got out, he just started to have these uh, blow-ups where, um, you know, uh, he told his parole officer, I should have killed my victims. They arrested him, and they wanted him to go before the parole board, but he never made it there, which is sort of a big question. Um, as to this Ramish email that you, you mentioned, what happened was the day Calvin Johnson was charged officially with first-degree homicide, Ramish sends an email to the chief of staff of Governor Hickenlooper and says, as you mentioned, he no indication from his record and conduct he was capable of homicide. I get that it's very difficult to make that leap and say someone is capable of homicide unless they've actually done it before, right? That, but if there's anybody that is qualified, I would hope to sort of see through those tea leaves, it would be people in the Department of Corrections. That's not to say Rick Ramis should have known better. But I'll say that when, you, when your email says, well, oh, record didn't indicate he'd commit homicide, it leaves me wondering, what did you think he was capable of? Did you think he was capable of violence? Because that's what seems to be the implied left out here, and that's what's very troubling. Uh, Ivan Moreno, formerly of the Rocky Mountain News, did a great story on Calvin Johnson in 2006 that clearly detailed what a troubled and what a very violent person this guy is. Last thing I'll say to wrap it up on my end, uh, this weekend will mark the three-year anniversary of the assassination of Tom Clements. Mm -hmm. Expect a big story on the Department of Corrections from the Denver Post. Whether it's investigative and scandalous, I don't know, but I would say the Sunday edition of the Post is going to be all about the Department of Corrections because it is the three-year anniversary of that assassination. Eric Todd brings up a variety of good points, but that last one is something that marks a real dark place for uh, Governor John Hickenlooper's tenure as governor. Out of all the different challenges he's had, that has been, I think, the darkest area. At this stage of the game, when you see something like this, the Calvin Johnson case, and the, this three-year anniversary of the murder of Tom Clements, do you think Governor Hickenlooper is going to want to do something to step in to have some sort of action? Don't know. We shall see. I'm half tempted here just to cede my time back to Todd <laughs> as if we were on the Senate floor because this was his story and he did a masterful job of covering it. But I'm half tempted, not fully tempted. I'll keep my time. <laughs> uh, I think as your question indicates, Dominic, the, ultimately the onus here, I mean, uh, Mr. Ramish is appointed by the governor. He serves at the pleasure of the governor. It seems in recent legislative sessions that the governor always has one cabinet member under fire. A year ago, it was the head of Department of Human Services. Here, it's the head of Department of Corrections. And I understand these calls are very tough and uh, evaluating parolees or parole applicants and seeing who is a good fit or who is ready for that step and who is not. I'm glad that that is not my responsibility. But for the people who chose that career path and who are supposedly expert in this, you would hope they would get it right a whole lot higher percent of the time. Everything I've read about Calvin Johnson, this guy was a ticking time bomb. And he was a ticking time bomb with a very short detonator. And it didn't take long for that, for, for, for that fuse uh, to go off. And yet that decision was made to release him. Complete Colorado had another report within the last week or two about another parolee, if I have the name right, Gerardino Gonzalez, who's involved in a police, a, a ch an incident up in the Highlands, a chase, a mm -hmm. cop being wounded, uh, et cetera. The, this is not just a one-off incident. If it was a one-off incident with Calvin Johnson, it would be horrific because of what happened, but it would still be one-off. 
I don't think this is one-off. I think it points to a deeper problem. And yes, I think at some point in time, the governor is going to have to weigh in. I'm not suggesting he's going to cashier his corrections chief, but he's going to have to weigh in and look like he's taking control of the situation. Kristen, while this is an executive branch agency, you have a lot of lawmakers at Capitol Hill that are seeing all this happening. Do you sense that some lawmakers want to see some action? I don't have that sense, but I think that there's a lot of uh, broad feeling that there are deep, deep problems within the Department of Correction. A lot of unanswered questions, of course, about the assassination of the, the former chief of the operation, whether <clears throat> there were white supremacist gangs maybe still operating in the Department of Corrections. There's a lot of anxiety, of course, about unused property they have, what to do with CSP2. Nobody wants Guantanamo detainees there, but what do we do with it? It actually costs us money, even though it's sitting empty to just make sure, you know, it's the, the pipes don't burst and that kind of thing. It becomes more expensive, but nobody knows what to do with it. And I think um, even though I think there's going to be want to, people want to see the governor answer for some of this, I don't think there are really a lot of alternatives out there, people knowing what should happen. It's kind of a black hole in state government right now. There's certainly a lot of concern, but not a lot of solutions coming forward. Patty, uh, you and your paper have covered a lot of stories like this in the past. What do you take from what we've learned so far? that it is a very inexact science. I have to say there is probably no thing we've looked at more over almost 40 years. The parole board, no matter who is governor, it is just so tricky. Sometimes they're great parole boards and they still make mistakes. Sometimes there are bad parole boards. In this case, with Calvin Johnson, basically the only thing he didn't do was beat up Jared from Subway, <laughs> and that happened anyway. I mean, he had every sign that there were going to be problems. When you want to self-revoke, that's kind of a cry for help that you probably don't get that often from people who are going up for parole. So there was definitely a mistake made here. Did Rick Ramish know what was going to happen? No. And let's remember that we first had Tom Clements brought in by Hickenlooper to really look hard at Department of Corrections, how you could let prisoners out, and more importantly, what they needed to succeed on the outside. And I think that's where we are still falling short. You let people out, but you've got to give them the tools and the services they need so they can work out on the outside. A bipartisan bill requiring police agencies to request prospective hire records from past departments passed the House Judiciary Committee this week. HB 1262, sponsored by Democratic Representative Angela Williams and Republican Senator John Cook, addresses a loophole that allows officers with previous guilty pleas to work in Colorado. Eric, what do you think of this bipartisan action here in the Colorado legislature? Well, I think I can do this one quickly. Good for them. It's the right <laughs> issue. Um, it's not going to solve the problem all on its own, but it is a step in the right direction. A couple months ago, I made Angela Williams my say something nice at the end of the mm -hmm. show for, for sponsoring this particular piece of legislation by getting John Cook as her co-sponsor, former Well County Sheriff. Uh, that is a powerful duo, Democrat in the House, Republican in the Senate. I don't have any reason to think this bill can't uh, go through the process. Kristen may have a better uh, assessment of that. Lastly, can we adopt the same concept and maybe apply it to medical technicians where we share information across state lines of bad apples? Uh, we could have used that in Colorado as well. And well, I think a lot of patients out of Swedish would have really backed that bill. Uh, uh, Kristen, as Eric uh, gave us a great segue, what's the inside scoop viewers need to know? It's interesting because the, the president of Senate, Bill Cadman, spent his whole opening day speech 
um, kind of a 20-minute love letter to law enforcement. He was really telegraphing, I'm not going to see, I'm not going to let anything get out of this chamber that can be any way construed as anti-cop. Um, so it's interesting that you have Cook on board. He's sort of a former sheriff. He's sort of their go-to guy on law enforcement issues. Last year's bill um, that, that did allow them to share their, some limited parts mm -hmm. of a former officer's record but didn't require it. This is taking a step further, saying, no, you must share um, if there's anything, not just lying uh, to you, but any kind of complaints about, about excess force or that kind of thing. Um, what's more interesting is where Cook is going to fall on a chokehold ban. Last year, that bill failed. He was opposed to banning it. This year, it, the, the ban is somewhat different. I don't really understand the nuance, but for some reason, cops may be okay with a chokehold ban that says you can't cut off blood flow, just not airflow. There's some sort of difference in banning both. So, and Cook has said publicly, I'm not sure where I stand on this. I haven't looked at it yet. So those other parts of the package may end up being more interesting. Patty, for a first-time senator, we're seeing uh, John Cook in the, in the press for a lot of things and a lot for bipartisan efforts. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, and he has great experience in law enforcement, which most legislators do not, unless it's dealing with law enforcement on the other <laughs> side. Um, if they go with the chokehold, let's also ban bouncers from using chokeholds. Yes. We saw one um, customer die this week because of a chokehold. Uh, the, um, the legislature has also been considering making hospitals have to share information about tech, so let's hope that also goes through. I think John Cook's got a great future at the legislature, and I think people will listen to him. I think... I think this will pass easily. Todd, can the deal get done? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, again, I go back to basically the bipartisan question you just asked Patty. I mean, John Cook is really amassing this sort of scorecard of working across the aisle. Um, the last time I was on this show, as a matter of fact, we talked about a bill he was working on w in conjunction with Rhonda Fields. And again, when you when you just look at John Cook, sort of this staunch Republican that really represents, uh, you know, the whole Eastern Plains in a sense, if you will, you know, um, and, and uh, represents law enforcement at the same time. Yeah, he's building this amazing uh, sort of bipartisan uh, hand to play gin with. The other thing I'd say is, you know, Eric brings up the, the, the um, medical issue. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago that Channel 9 did the same thing, but it was with teachers that had been disciplined in other states. So we're not just looking at, uh, you know, we're not just looking at uh, this with cops. And by the way, congrats to Chris Osher on a job well done at the Denver Post. We would not have this bill if it weren't for his reporting. But it's not just cops. It's medical issues and teaching issues as well. Mm -hmm. We're starting something new this week during our favorite part of the show, with Disgrace that We Can Say Something Nice. We're now going to give you at home the chance to join in the naming of Disgrace of the Week or to say something nice about somebody. To join the discussion, go to our Facebook page or check us out on Twitter. Every week, we'll include a lucky viewer's choice for each segment. But as always, we start Disgrace of the Week with Patty Calhoun. Patty? Well, I'm going to have to return to the disgrace of the local Republican and Democratic parties and the national Republican and Democratic parties for... In our case, how we worked the caucuses where people couldn't get in, people were having trouble who tried to register Democrat and weren't that didn't register. You've got the Republicans who were concerned that their votes didn't matter because there wasn't uh, the straw poll on the presidential candidate. And then you have this crazy but double standard. You've got the superdelegates for the Democrats. The Republicans just have mass chaos. Let's actually get things organized. Let's let those high school seniors come up with this as a civics program. <laughs> Todd. 
Uh, the I Love You Guys Foundation started after the tragic death of Emily Keys uh, in Bailey. Ever since that uh, tragedy, they have done this motorcycle parade, Emily's parade, and they have announced now that they won't be doing the parade anymore. Sad to see that go. Great to know, though, that John Michael Keyes and his wife Ellen will still be doing the good work that the I Love You Guys Foundation has been doing ever since that tragedy. Eric. Just the entire hypocrisy on all sides around the Supreme Court appointment and what the process should be. There is no one involved in this who is operating from any kind of ethics or any kind of real principle. And if the situation was reversed with a Republican president and a Democratic Senate in the final year of a president, you know everyone's position would be diametrically opposite. Particular <laughs> call out to the president here. It's certainly his right and his responsibility to make an appointment, make a nomination, which he did this week. But then to lecture the Senate on how they need to give the guy an up and down vote, this is the same with Barack Obama, who as a senator from Illinois, filibustered the Alito appointment, denying him, or if he had his way, to deny him an up or down vote. But now an up or down vote is sacrosanct. There is shame all around. <laughs> Kristen. Patty already mentioned mine. It's Stephen Nigg. He's a 60-year-old guy in prison in Englewood um, on a weapons charge, and he thought, I want to reduce my sentence, but doing that, I'm going to punch the famous subway guy to draw attention to my lengthy sentence, and then they will reduce it. It seems ridiculous. I did check. He has a um, kind of GoFundMe page for his defense. He has a goal of 50000 and by this morning, he'd raised 689 So I don't know who those people are, but it seems like kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Anything can have a GoFundMe page, just proving that point. <laughs> Our viewer submitted Disgrace of the Week comes from Tony Hopkins, who nominated Colorado Republicans for trying to introduce a voter ID into a voter ID bill into law. He asks, what's next, a poll tax? Now we go to, uh, to say something nice about somebody. Patty, start us off. Two Civic Ventures, local. Warm Cookies of the Revolution, which has been doing monthly games in different neighborhoods. It goes to the Globeville neighborhood tomorrow. And in northwest Denver, there's going to be a... Rafael Espinoza is hosting a How to Make Your Area Historic. We need more information on how to do these things rather than rumors. How to make your place historic before they tear it down to build a five-story. Exactly. So move, move fast. <laughs> Todd. This is embarrassing. I just realized I gave my say something nice during the disgrace. So now I'm not the on first the, time. It's okay. Now I'm on the opposite end. So uh, now I have to do a disgrace that goes to Colorado State Government since it's Sunshine Week uh, for con continuing to leave this Gmail system basically unaccounted for, where we have no real uh, accountability in terms of saving emails so that reporters and citizens can learn what their government is doing. It's a disgrace that they've let it keep going. They're saving a ton of money. They can put some of that back into data retention. Eric. Well, we're about to elect a president who doesn't share that <laughs> point of view, but uh, I'm going to keep my say something nice within the family here at the table and say something nice about a uh, counterpart across the table, Todd Shepard. In an era where investigative journalism is in short supply, he is doing some of the finest investigative journalism through complete Colorado in the state these days, particularly with respect to the Department of Corrections, the whole parole issue that has not been a one-hit story. It's been a multi-part story. It is unfolding and ongoing, and uh, kudos to Todd. Here, here. Kristen. I agree. Um, but mine is uh, Steve Cohen. He owns a new hemp facility. Um, I, the, hemp, the whole hemp industry is really blossoming here. I could, just two years ago when we started allowing people to get licenses to grow hemp, there were like uh, eight. Uh, this year there's more than a hundred. I think that could potentially, I know this sounds crazy, could potentially be bigger than marijuana for Colorado, definitely for agriculture in Colorado, this uh, CBD hemp oil.
That's uh, fun to see. And our viewers submitted say something nice. It's from J.M. Fay, who gave a shout-out for CU making the NCAA tournament. Wish their stay was a little bit longer, but at least they did make it. That's all the time we have tonight. As always, remember to check out CIO Podcast and on, on, on iTunes and our web-exclusive segments on Twitter. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night.